Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Uh, This morning we're starting a new series um, on James, the book of James. I'm pretty excited for this. Um, So our sermon text is James 1, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Keep your finger there. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 111. I'm sorry, 1011. Uh, But first, let's turn to Psalm 1. We'll be reading Psalm 1. If you're using a pew Bible, that is page 448. Psalm 1. Right, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus. Uh, This is God's holy, infallible, and abiding word. Give your full attention to it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's turn now to James 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Uh, grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. O Lord our God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, These first eight verses of James uh, really set the stage for the entire letter. Uh, Brilliant stuff. Uh, They address the two main themes of James. And what are those? Faith and wisdom. Uh, James really is a wisdom letter. Uh, Think on the same line as the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, like Proverbs, 
Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, and others. Uh, James is a blend of that, that type of writing, wisdom literature, and the New Testament letters like Philippians and Romans. Uh, Because James, like the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, uh, wants us to learn how to live a life of faith. Uh, But it's written like the New Testament letters of Paul and others. Uh, James wants us to know how to be wise as a people not at home in this world where misery, affliction, and sorrow are so rampant. Uh, With that said, uh, here's the big idea for us this morning. It's this. Rejoice because our faith grows more and more wisdom full in the midst of a world full of trials. Rejoice because our faith grows more and more wisdom full in the midst of a world full of trials. As with most letters in the New Testament, uh, James gives us a brief introduction. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Uh, There are a few people in scripture named James, but this James is none other than the brother of Jesus. James was Jesus' biological brother. Stop and think about that. James and Jesus probably played in the mud together when they were little. They probably had disagreements. They grew up together. James witnessed uh, Jesus' earthly ministry. You know, he witnessed it all. His brother's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So James knew Jesus intimately. And at face value... He's an important figure, and he was. In Acts, Luke tells us that he was a leader in Jerusalem. He, uh, we see his leadership during the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Uh, but James identifies himself not as a leader, but as a slave, a servant. Uh, notice that James doesn't assert his status. Uh, The apostles loved using this term for themselves, a slave, a servant. We saw that with Paul in Philippians. Uh, Peter says he's a servant of Jesus. Jude, the same thing. The prophets used it all the time for themselves. So James is in that tradition. His life is entirely devoted to God and to Jesus Christ. And so already, James is showing us what it looks like to not be double-minded, which we'll look at in a little bit. Uh, But what do we see? We see James' singular devotion and commitment to God and Christ. He is single-mindedly a servant to God and the Lord Jesus. Why? Well, because he belongs to them. He is not his own. By the way, that's the call to us. That's the call of the gospel to us. We are not our own. I think we can even see this act of service in his name, in James's name. His name is literally Jacob. The name James comes from uh, really an inaccurate rendering in Latin, I guess in case you're wondering. Uh, anyway, 
the, the name Jacob is really interesting if you think about it. Because look, look, here's Jacob. Who is he talking to? The 12 tribes, the sons of Israel. Those Jews who are in the dispersion, they are displaced. They are not truly home in the world. I mean, can you imagine being away from home in a foreign place? It's easy to identify with them. We, as believers in Christ, are not home in this world. Uh, But here's the twist. James, or Jacob, doesn't identify himself as an authoritative, fatherly figure to them, but as one of them, as a brother. Uh, Throughout the book, you'll notice him addressing them as my brothers, over and over. That's how he chooses to talk to them. Because he sees himself on equal footing with them. He's a servant kind of a leader. There's actually no other kind. And so with that brief introduction, uh, James gives a shocking command. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, Let me suggest that you don't sanitize what James says. Because it's meant to shock you. Think about how absurd James sounds. You want me to respond to trials with complete joy? Are you sure? Are you sure? And notice James is not suggesting this. He's commanding us to count trials with perfect joy. You know, if we're just a little in tune to who we are, then we'll know that that's anything but natural. Why? Because trials are painful, some more than others, but in all of them, it's not in us to count them as joy. I mean, how are we tempted to respond to them? We're tempted to become angry and disappointed, bitter and cynical. And worst of all, trials can lead us into dis- to unbelief and despair. But notice what James doesn't say. He doesn't say that trials are a joy. That would not be shocking. That would be a lie. Trials are not in and of themselves joyous. But they can become occasions for joy. Uh, When we see that God is accomplishing His good purposes in and through them, we can count them as joy. You know what that's called? That's called maturity. That's called maturity. Uh, So James wants us to have this mature kind of joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Uh, That word, meet, uh, is pretty weak, in my opinion, uh, because it kind of sounds like a pleasant encounter, right? Oh, hi, nice to meet you, right? But there's nothing pleasant about it. The word has to do with falling prey into something. Uh, Jesus uses the same word when he told the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember that story? Uh, Jesus told the story, uh, story like this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Or think of Joseph when his brothers threw him in the pit to die. That's James' idea here. 
Real trials are like robbers stripping you naked, or angry, jealous brothers pushing you into a hole, taking away your dignity and leaving you to die. Not a nice encounter, is it? Uh, you, you don't meet trials, you fall into them. That's the experience. And these trials are diverse. Uh, the word for various kinds has to do with many, cor- uh, many colors. They are trials of many colors. Uh, picture a rainbow. You know, some, some trials will be blue, some will be red, and some will be yellow, Right? Uh, Speaking of Joseph, uh, this whole colorful trial thing reminds me of him. Uh, Remember Joseph's coat of many colors, right? It was a coat his father Jacob gave or made for him with his own hands. Who knew Jacob was like that? He can stitch together a coat. That's pretty cool. Uh, But Jacob took his time to make it. It was a very special coat because it symbolized Jacob's love to Joseph. The text says he loved Joseph more than his other brothers. That's why he made him this coat. But this, but this colorful coat would bring Joseph so much trouble, didn't it? This coat made his brothers indignant of him. While he was wearing it, his brothers plotted to kill him. Uh, Thanks to his brother Reuben, Joseph didn't die, right? Thankfully, he didn't die. Uh, But in the words of Andy Dwyer, he fell into the pit. Uh, (laughs) Some of you will get that. Um, But here's the point. Here's the point. Joseph's coat was not a sign that his father didn't love him. It It was a sign that he did. It's the same with your own many-colored trials. You need to know that your trials are not a sign that your Heavenly Father doesn't love you. It's a sign that He does. Well, how do I know that? Because James says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God intends to use your trials to produce something wonderful in you. Your trials are producing steadfastness. They're creating endurance and integrity so that you have this singular focus on Him, a determination that doesn't easily waver under trials. So God means for our trials for our good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph's story. God means it for our good to shape our character for the, for the long run. Because that's true faith. True faith endures. I love the way Peter puts it. Uh, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, our heart says that trials and misfortunes are a result of our bad behavior. That, or God is trivial, or that he's just mad at us. That's what our heart says. 
And that's the narrative that we give ourselves. But James gives us a different story. He says, you know, the trials you are going through, your constant struggle with sin, those insults and criticisms you keep getting, those struggles are, constant, are actually for your good. That's what James says. They are for our good to mature us. But here's the thing, though. James is not saying that trials automatically make us mature. He's not giving us a foolproof formula. Something else has to happen while you're being tested. There has to be a resolve that happens, a resolve to endure One that says, I will cling to God no matter what happens. No matter how deep the pit goes, I will cling to God. I like how one commentator puts it. He says, it is commonly commonly taught that trials bring maturity. That is not so. Rather, fortitude and perseverance in times of testings produce maturity. That's what we need, a fortitude and perseverance when we are tested if we are ever going to be mature. Uh, But for James, endurance is not the goal. Uh, Endurance is a means to an end. Uh, The goal is perfection and completeness, James says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, there, There could be a lot of misunderstanding here, so let me just say what James is not talking about. He's not talking about sinlessness. No one can achieve that on this side of heaven. This is about wholeness and maturity. Uh, One commentator said uh, these are persons who are single-minded in their loyalty and devotion to God. That's what maturity looks like. That's the goal of steadfastness. Single-mindedness in our life in God. Having spiritual integrity integrity under trials, being steadfast in our faith when our allegiance to God is severely tested. It's when we learn to trust God and not ourselves, nor our circumstances. I mean, think of the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Uh, This guy did the law. He was religious. He went to church. Uh, But there was still one thing he didn't trust God with. What was that thing? Money. Uh, that to Jesus was this guy's immaturity. Um, Jesus said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Do you remember what happened to this young man? He walked away sorrowful. Why? Because he wasn't single-minded. His allegiance to Jesus was divided. Lord, you have this part of my life, but you can't have this part. And so James says, this is why we need our faith to be tested, so that we will have endurance to be single-minded, so that it will produce single-minded allegiance to God. That's what a mature person looks like. Someone who's deeply convinced that Her trials don't take God by surprise, but that God has a good plan behind them. That he's not out to crush us, but to bless us. That's someone with an undivided allegiance to God. 
You know, trials have a way of messing with our heads. Uh, They bring out questions we don't ask ourselves when things are going smoothly. Questions like, is God still good to me? What did I do wrong? Why is God punishing me? And you know, those questions don't disappear. We have to continue to wrestle with them when we fall into trials, when we're being beaten up by them. And so how do we cope when those questions are fresh in our minds, when we're tempted to question God? Uh, James says we need wisdom. Because that is what we are lacking when our faith is immature and divided. Uh, We're going to encounter wisdom throughout James, so it's important that we understand what it is. And And I'll put it like this. Wisdom is recognizing God's perspective and purpose and acting accordingly. Wisdom is recognizing God's perspective and purpose and acting accordingly. Wisdom is faith in action. So it's the opposite of those whose faith is dead. Uh, James will later say of them, uh, the one, uh, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? A faith that doesn't act is foolish and dead, contrary to the way of wisdom. And so it's not... Wisdom is not just about information. Uh, Google can't supply you with wisdom. Only God can. Because only God is the source of wisdom. He alone has the eternal perspective and purpose for all things. And so we need wisdom from Him if we're going to ever be mature and whole if we're ever going to be undivided in our commitment to God. Because the truth is, we all lack wisdom. So James tells us to pray. Go to God and ask Him for wisdom. Why? Because God is liberal. Not the bad kind. Uh, James says, God gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given Him. Uh, By the way, this act of asking for wisdom is itself wisdom. Because wisdom is not automatic. Asking for it is to put it into practice. Uh, Let me tell you, there's nothing wiser than going to God. When you don't know what to do, go pray and ask for wisdom. That is always the wise thing to do. I mean, isn't that... Solomon's first and greatest act of wisdom, he asked for wisdom. He could have asked for anything in the world. But what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. He wanted wisdom. How much more us? How much more us? God doesn't hesitate to give us wisdom when we ask for it. We are more hesitant to ask God for wisdom than He is to give it to us. And He does it without reproach, James says. It means God is not stingy. He is incredibly generous, as we've been talking about in Sunday school. He doesn't look at you and sees if you are worthy. No, God gives liberally when you ask. 
When you ask for wisdom, he gives it to you. Wisdom will be given to you. You don't have to bargain with God, even though that's our temptation. God doesn't bargain. He just gives when you ask in faith. Uh, What James says in verses 6 through 8 might seem contradictory. Uh, He says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But I thought James just said God gives generously, without reproach. Now here's the thing, God gives generously without reproach. He's surely not stingy in giving wisdom, unlike many of us um, who are tempted to cling to our possessions. No, God, God delights to give his wisdom, but that doesn't mean there's no condition. God requires faith from us to receive his wisdom. I mean, that's not new, is it? That's all over the Bible. James knew faith is the open hand that receives God's wisdom. You can't receive it without faith. I think we all know uh, what the writer to the Hebrews says. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I mean, can we really receive wisdom if we don't have that conviction? That God actually gives it to us. As James says, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And so James describes this person as being double-minded. He probably has the Hebrew sense of having two hearts here. Uh, In Deuteronomy, God chides the Israelites for worshiping God with two hearts. They were double-hearted or double-minded They kept changing their allegiance back and forth. They worshipped the Lord one moment and Baal the next. Back and forth. The same uh, with a double-minded person. They are divided between their allegiance, between God and something else. Uh, The metaphor James chooses is a boat without a rudder uh, that's in the midst of a raging sea, constantly driven back and forth by the wind. The double-minded person is not steadfast. They are not anchored when they fall into trials. Uh, Paul uses the same metaphor. He says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Ephesians 4. You see, the double-minded person is really immature. Their thoughts are fickle and they lack direction. They seem to always be dancing in their heads. And you know, they're not doing the conga. Uh, You know that dance when you do, uh, that you do at weddings, right? Uh, When you follow someone in front of you and they make a long line, they look like a giant snake. They don't do that. No, the double-minded person does the... That's the what? The, the hokey pokey. They turn themselves around all the time. That's what it's all about. Because they're not actually committed to the way of God. They are consist, consistently inconsistent. Later on, James will essentially say the same thing. 
about people with a divided tongue. He says, With it we bless our Lord and, Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not uh, to be so. And even more, James will rebuke people. People divided in their allegiance to the world and to God. Uh, listen to this. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, the double-minded person has made friends with their doubts. It's why they don't receive wisdom from God, because their doubt is on equal footing with their faith in God. James says, all their ways are unstable. Uh, isn't that the opposite of the blessed man in Psalm 1 that we read from earlier? The blessed man, the man who is wise, is planted by streams of water. He is stable. Their leaves don't fade. They yield fruit when the time is right. And the Lord knows and loves their ways. The double-minded person is more like the wicked man in Psalm 1. They're like chaff blown by the wind, unstable. They can't stand the judgment. And their way will perish. Um, maybe this scares you a little bit. Or maybe it scares you a lot. Maybe you're thinking, what about me? I have doubts. I have questions. Am I a double-minded person? Uh, James, does James mean that we can't have any uncertainty at all? Is that what he means? That we can't wrestle with doubts whatsoever? If that's what James is saying, then we are all in trouble. We all have uncertainties and doubts. But I don't think that's what James is saying. James is talking about this deep internal conflict inside of someone. There's no singleness in purpose in them. They can't decide whether God is the giver of wisdom or they have to fend for themselves for wisdom. You see, the Bible gives us room for doubt, to question things, to question even God. Just think of the Psalter. We hear things like, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? You see, the, the psalmist had doubts. So it's okay to have honest doubts and even complaints to the Lord. It doesn't mean that you're double-minded. God wants you to bring every part of your being to Him, including your doubts. What's not okay is to put God in the judgment seat, to let your doubts be the judge of God. We have to let Him judge our doubts. Will we stand long enough to receive God's gifts? Will, will we be like the psalmists 
and continue to affirm God's generosity in spite of our doubts. Or take Abraham, for example, uh, who Paul says in Romans 4, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Beloved, don't let your doubts make you waver. Use them as an opportunity to grow strong in your faith. Because the reality is, there will be many things that will bewilder us in this life. We will be puzzled and uncertain about many things as we continue to live far from home, as we endure trials in this world. Why is this happening to me? Why now? We will wonder why hard things keep happening to us. And so we need to be convinced that God knows our doubts and he is undividedly, univocally, single-mindedly committed to us. Well, how do we know that God is committed to us? He is single-mindedly committed to us. God is so committed to us that he gave his only begotten son for us. That's how we know. Jesus is our greater Joseph who fell into a multitude of colored trials. His brothers plotted against him. He was mocked and ridiculed. He endured the ultimate trial, the cross. Jesus is proof that God is a generous giver and that he gives without reproach. He even endured our reproaches. Paul says in Romans 15, For Christ did not please himself, but but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so God gives us wisdom when we ask. He has given us his very wisdom in Christ. Jesus, the wisdom of God. God gives the life of his son to you when you ask in faith. He will never withhold his wisdom from you when you are single-mindedly in faith asking from him. Let me just end with this reflection. Are the colorful trials of this world beating you up? Do you feel like they just won't let up and can't see any good from them? The answer is not to turn to yourself because the answer is not found in yourself. The answer is not in you. The answer is not to man up and do better. The answer is to look up to God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. See him crucified at that cross, because it's there where you will find sure confidence and complete joy as you are afflicted and kicked down by colorful trials. Because the cross tells you that God uses your trials and that they are not in vain. He uses them to shape you to be more wisdomful, standing firm in Him who gives wisdom generously. And so this meal before us is God's wisdom made visible before our very eyes. It is to make us wise that we might trust Him 
who gave himself up for us. Uh, Because it assures us that God is single-mindedly committed to us. The bread and the wine remind us that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out for us. Because he fell into a colorful trial in this world, he can give us wisdom. Amen. I'd like to invite uh, our elders and Pastor Brad to come that we might partake of this wisdom meal. Let us pray. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise and thanksgiving for your great love for us. Thank you for your revealed word made known in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. May that word be a lamp unto our feet and guide us where you will. May it make us wise in our worldly trials. Teach us what it means to be single-minded on you what it means to trust you in a world full of painful trials. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.